Disclosure, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. What's up, everyone? It's Ben here. Got another great guest for you today. This time we have on Will McDonough. He is the founder and CEO of EMG Advisors. They are an ETF company that specializes specifically in the base layer commodities for essentially the essentially the electrification of the future. But he's also done a number of other interesting things in crypto, uh, traditional financial services, and even got his start on the Patriots uh, when Tom Brady was there. So without much further ado, uh, let's get into it. Thanks. And we're live. What's up, Will? What's up, buddy? Good to see you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming on. So let's, I guess, just jump right into it. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got here today, um, a little bit about your background, what you're up to currently, and then we can just jump into you know, wherever we want to go. Yeah, man, I love it. Uh, I, I have a uh, have to find a way to give a shorter intro, but I, I've had a, a weird career. Um, I worked in professional sports for the first decade of my life for the New England Patriots in their front office. Yeah, started with a management company representing athletes and entertainers back in those days. So that was like '97 to '07 that I did that. Uh, super fun. Patriots were very successful. Won three out of four Super Bowls. Super Bowl ring under my desk and uh, a lot of great friendships and memories from that time. In 2008, really March 1st of 2008, I moved to New York and uh, launched a debt and credit fund of funds. Fun. Uh, it was a thing back then, less so now, but basically yeah. people would pool money and pay you a fee to sub-allocate to hedge funds. Yeah. We did that in the debt space. The original thesis was for it to be... Um, about hard closed funds and getting access to the best managers. But mm-hmm. then the uh, 2008 crisis hit and nobody was hard closed anymore. <laughs> so it is quite quickly to uh, debt and credit, which happened to just be the theme of the time. Yeah. So ran about a $250 million fund with a group called Avenue Capital. That's a spectacular firm in New York uh, and globally that managed about $20 billion at the time in uh, private equity. And then uh, I was recruited away to Goldman Sachs in 2010, which was an amazing honor and um, some of the best years of my career, just undefeated. Every human being you engaged with was a rock star. Yeah. You You never had one meeting where you're like, eh, that guy's a schmuck. Like it was an amazing experience to just be in those rooms and uh, worked on the team there that managed the private capital, the partners. Oh, that's cool. $17 $17 billion family office desk of 400 partners at Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Uh, which was an interesting I mean, thing. And it's formative. You know, it was formative for what I ended up doing in my life, I think, uh, because those guys are experts in whatever silo they're in. Mm-hmm. But they also have a very concentrated net worth. And so, how do they get diversification away from, you know, we used to joke Hamptons House, New York City penthouse. And uh, Goldman Sachs stock are pretty correlated. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Okay. Markets are up, you're loving life. If the markets are down, you got issues. Yeah. So our job was to find ways to diversify them, get them in emerging asset classes, get them in liquid investments too. Liquidity is king. Yeah. When you have, um, you know, as as most entrepreneurs know, you have a net worth on paper, but the amount of money you got to come up with in in a week is a whole different number than what your you know paper net worth is. Yep. And that's a Goldman partner and a banking partner to a T. Um, so really love that experience. And then I ended up having an opportunity uh, that I brought to Goldman that didn't make sense for them, but I left in 2013 to buy banks in Africa. And so Bob Diamond and I, the former CEO of Barclays, went out and bought eight banks across the continent of Africa. Um, we listed it on the London Stock Exchange through a SPAC in 2014 for 825 million bucks. Another fascinating experience took me uh, all around the world and really exposed me to Africa and and become a a love and a passion of mine. And um, and so I did that, took that public, as I said, in 14 and then started doing my own kind of thing, you know, hung my own shingle and managed my own money and 
trying to get myself into some interesting investments and things that I could either incubate or add value to. And um, that got me into blockchain in 2017. I launched my own protocol in 2017. I've, I've uh, launched a DeFi hedge fund that I actually sold last year. Um, was the vice chairman of Valkyrie when we did the NASDAQ's first Bitcoin ETF. Um, so really enjoyed that experience and and, um, and and work. And then this past year, uh, right after Christmas, I uh, took public an ETF on the New York Stock Exchange called CHARGE. C-H-R-G is the ticker. And it's um, copper, lithium, nickel, and cobalt futures. So basically giving people a pure way to participate in the adoption of battery technology and that whole like carbon neutral green movement um, is impossible without those four core commodities. And so how do yep. investors get exposure to those without having to buy startup miners in, you know, the Democratic <laughs> Republic of Congo? Yeah, third world countries type thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a scary scary uh, in, investment landscape. So that's what I've been doing for the last five months, six months, and it's okay. been fun. Um, still super passionate about blockchain and DeFi, and you know, tra- tracking the Ethereum upgrades, and um, uniquely uh, excited about zero knowledge proofs and and yeah. for adoption. Um, and so I stay very close to the industry and, and have some you know significant investments still that I'm I'm. Uh, excited with uh recent price activity has been all right for the for the crypto sphere yeah yeah things have uh trended up at least for the start of this year for sure um yeah you're right you definitely need like a little bit shorter of an intro there's like a million things i know how to do it from, i just have to from, skip decades yeah from pa- like patriots front office and you know working with athletes to multiple financial services uh projects um maybe let's just start with charge um what like why why that specifically where did that come from i mean yeah electric's obviously a huge thing but what what was your analysis and looking at something like that um my now partner is a guy named john raymond and he runs a 13 billion dollar private equity shop in houston called energy mineral group um he and i when my old boss at goldman gary cohen was working in the white house went and kind of spoke to the White House and different stakeholders, uh, I could say, about the fact that the U.S. is more and more dependent on China for yeah. rare earths and critical metals. And that's a geopolitical problem that we're going to deal with. And it's, you know, uh, China is the Russia of of green energy. Uh, they've been brilliant about going out and acquiring offtake agreements for physical metals. They control the processing. The, the majority of processing of lithium, nickel, cobalt, and copper is in China. And yeah. so it's a massive bottleneck. And, um, you know, we don't have the best relationship with them. I would I would speculate that it's only going to get worse. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's a problem. If, you know, how'd that work out for Eastern Europe when they depended on Russia for uh, oil and gas? It's, it's not a good situation. So um, anyway, we were briefing the White House on that. And I, in my commercial selfish self, called my old desk at Goldman and said, how do I go long lithium and copper? You yeah. know, like, I'm going to get a bet on. This is the biggest dislocation. You know, when you hear things, you know, you know, uh, immediately. I'm like, this is crazy and this is a, a no-brainer. And the answer scared me. It was that you either do private equity, 10-year lockup, and you go invest in mines in, you know, non-democratic parts of the world. Yeah. Um, or you buy startup car companies, many of whom yeah. are startups and unproven. And, um, you know, Lucid, I think, delivered 800 cars last quarter. Like, these are not yeah. big companies. Yeah. But that's what trades in the U.S. equity exchanges. And so that's your opportunity to get exposure. And I said to my now partner, John, that day, we have to launch an ETF for this because... Yeah. You know, to trade futures is also quite complicated. You need $10 million of cash on deposit and institutional trading desk. Retail investors can't do that. So Robin Hood, Charles Schwab, all these people have no access to to get exposure to the future price of of commodities. And we launched Charge to do that. Now it's trades on the New York Stock Exchange daily. It's fully liquid. It's And then we actively manage it across those metals. We happen to be very overly weight to copper right now because we think it's going to have a massive year. 
and a little bit underweight to lithium, which has been proven to be the right thing to do. And, um, you know, investors give us their money and, you know, they can get it at any moment, but they also know they're going to participate fully in the adoption of green technology, solar, wind, EV, whatever it might be, um, without any of the execution risk at the company level of companies going bankrupt or not delivering EVs on time or whatever the heck it is. So uh, we're excited about it. It's been a, it's been an amazing, the timing couldn't have been better. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, hearing it laid out like that in a way where either you lock up money forever and take a huge risk on something you have zero control over or just not participating, that definitely leaves, you know, space for a product like an ETF. Um, how, like, uh, how do you, you said it's actively managed. How do you guys approach that? Is it pretty rules-based or is it more, you know, kind of yeah. everything that comes in and make a call? What, what's the... Uh... The word that I love is quantumental. Okay, uh, great. <laughs> fundamentally quant, but it's qualitative yeah. overlay. Um, because yes, we do have robust data. We track over a thousand inputs. So, so let me take you down that funnel because I think it's interesting and and it helps understand the breadth of battery. Um, if you drive a Tesla that goes four hundred miles on a charge and zero to sixty in two seconds, that has a different chemical composition battery than a two-wheel scooter sure, and a U.S. Postal Service truck or an Amazon delivery truck, mm-hmm. right? So if I have a U.S. Postal Service truck that never drives more than 50 miles a day, never goes over 30 miles an hour, stops every 10 feet, I can, build, I, I can really refine the type of engine that that car needs and the type of battery that that needs. Oh, by the way, it goes back to the post office every night and can get plugged in and it's on a set schedule. If yeah. I have a fancy Tesla that I need to be able to drive to Manhattan at the drop of a hat, that requires a different caliber of battery and a different sure. capacity. Um, and then you go on down the, you know, the the use case all the way up to um, you know, battery energy storage systems, which you're seeing used by municipalities as kind of backup generators. You know, what people underappreciate is solar, wind, hydro, all these intermittent supplies of energy have to be paired with a battery yeah it's not always blowing not always windy it's not always sunny right and so when it is sunny you harness and when it isn't sunny you deploy but all of that activity is in the battery and so no matter how big your wind turbine is that ain't being on demand used like firing the coal burner would be or starting yeah so all of that green energy source maturation requires significantly dense batteries. And so we track all use cases of those. Mm-hmm. And if Tesla says I'm using an NCM811 battery, which is eight parts nickel, one part cobalt, one part manganese, with the majority of it being lithium. But just so you know the terminology, I then can extrapolate. If they're going to make 1.8 million cars in 2023 mm-hmm. using NCM811 batteries, that's going to result in kilogram demand of x yeah then when i lay that out across all of the different car companies and their commitments to going green and all the different use cases that exist you can do a math equation that shows how completely out of whack our our supplies for you know sure. those these are and we just the world just geologically doesn't have enough of this stuff for all these you know targets that the politicians want to make oh by 2030 by 2050 by the way they won't be in office when those dates come because yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. well most of them are also like 70 plus 80 years old too so we got that to look forward to as well they're not even gonna be around yeah Uh, maybe god willing um but you know if you look out at that curve of 2030 carbon neutrality you know it's we just are quite confident that the world doesn't have enough of the stuff. And so blockchain people appreciate this as well because it's all about fixed supply and rising demand. Oh yeah. You know, part of the beauty of Bitcoin and the beauty of tokens beyond liquidity, which you know I'm smitten with, is predictable supply or diminishing supply in a rising demand environment is pretty exciting. Yeah. When you apply that to copper, that's pretty exciting. They're yeah. both Every EV needs a mile of copper wire in the car. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Every charger is copper. 
Yeah. Every grid connectivity is copper. So if we want to talk about batteries or lithium, yeah, but all the interconnectivity required to that future of, of technology is just like saying, you know, pipes for oil. Sure. It's all copper. It's the only conductive metal. And so um, we're very bullish on, on that as, as something that's going to be way more in demand than it is in supply. Sure. Does that... I mean, there's a lot of ways I feel like this kind of presents challenges because China owns a lot of these rare earth metals for EVs. Um, there is a super limited supply of them. And the goal is to be 100% electric um, at all costs, it seems like. Does, does reality not kind of mesh up in a way? Not even close. Like, yeah. Not even close. It's, it's, I, I do believe it's scientifically and geologically impossible to come close to carbon neutrality and that's okay yeah because you know you know how they say if you want to catch a fish you throw the 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 worm past it and pull it back to the boat you yeah. never catch the fish where you throw the worm so yeah. we have to set these far targets sure. and we're going to end up better than we are today yeah. but the reality of it is with all of the you know claims being made all that means to me is inflation reduction acts will continue and persist and be global because they're going to have to incentivize adoption, which only drives demand curve up. Uh, in an environment, like I say, where supply is not increasing, that should mean copper and lithium and nickel and cobalt year over year are going to have big price improvements. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to look at the base commodity rather than like even the technology itself, right? So like if... I don't even know if battery technology is capable or will be, you know, then 10, 15, 20 years to handle that kind of, you know, 21st century, you know, economy. But by looking at just the metals itself, like you kind of, it, it doesn't even really matter. Like, yeah. And, and that's why I love stripping the execution risk out because look no further than Tesla, um, wh who everyone is educated uh, about, but they, you know, they, tripled i think their vehicle production last year they opened factories they opened they killed it they by every metric they had an unbelievable best in the century company growth year stock went down 80 percent yeah because yeah. elon sold 26 billion dollars worth of shares elon bought twitter and got distracted macroeconomic factors inflation all this stuff that had nothing to do with the fact that ev sales multiplied yeah. And they own 64% of the EV market. So the fact that you, so how infuriating is, is it as a wealth person, as an investor, to be right on the thesis? Yeah. Lose money. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like you yeah. bet on the Celtics to win, they won, but they didn't cover. And you're like, how did I screw this up? I knew they were going to yeah. win. Like we're able to now look at Tesla and say, I was right. Their EV adoption tripled, but I lost 80% of my money because I was exposed to uncorrelated things, unfortunately. Sure. Whereas if you had just invested in lithium last year with the same amount you invested in Tesla, you would have been up 180%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, more, that's more closely tied to the demand rise sure. than... You know, trading at thirty-four times earnings or something—it's just—it's just made up multiples. Yeah, it's uh, what you found is a really interesting sort of leverage point to capitalize on those trends, and that kind of applies to crypto too, right? Or at least some parts of crypto, I guess. Um, I'm thinking of like Bitcoin, Ethereum, things that have. Well, let me tell you, I love that Ben because I think about that all the time. Yeah, and they always have a similar term. Think about Ethereum. You own gas. Gas. Yeah. Why is it called gas? Because you need it to transact. It's need, you need gas to transact. So here I have Ethereum, which is went from fixed supply to decreasing supply. And is in if you believe that the Ethereum network is going to grow and, and that's where a lot of the innovation is occurring, well, then there's going to be more demand for what? Gas. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so you have a fixed and limiting, limited and decreasing supply of ETH, and you have rising demand for transaction volume, which is why people think Ethereum should be ten, twenty thousand dollars instead of two. And I happen to agree. Yeah. That in essence an energy bet 
on a fixed supply asset with rising demand. It's the same macroeconomic thing. And I always love that from, you know, I'm, I'm no fancy. I don't have any fancy degrees. I didn't go to, you know, any graduate programs or anything like that. But I did take Econ 101 and I left yeah. standing supply and demand and like, keep it simple, stupid. You don't got to go too deep to figure out some of these things that just, you know, I, I think over time. Now let's talk about that too. You got to zoom out a little bit. I don't want to tell you ETH's going to be at 2000 tomorrow, but I want to tell you it's going to be above 2000 in a year. It's same with copper and lithium. Like, I don't want to day trade that. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm certainly not a day trader. That's way too much, way too much juice for me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm more kind of inclined to invest on long term. Uh, sorry about this. I keep getting these notifications from my sister. Um, Let's see where is it going. Yeah, uh, maybe let's kind of get into the the DeFi hedge fund thing. So, like you said, you just got out of that. Um, how, how did that whole thing go for you? I mean, if you got out of it a year or so ago, the timing was probably incredible. Very lucky with the timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that that is you can't you can't. That's just luck. Um, yeah. Now uh, I partnered with a, a brilliant guy named Wes Cohen uh, down in Miami. Um, and he is has a DeFi protocol now that I think is super exciting called Juice um, that he's gone on to launch. Um, and so Wes approached me before DeFi summer, so maybe two and a half years ago. Yeah. And with a little wonky Excel file, started talking about total value locked before anyone know, knew what total locked value was. Mm -hmm. He was telling me about all these on-chain metrics that allow you to track flows. And just same thing that we're talking about. Yeah. Gas, demand. Where's the assets going? What's locked up tokens, release schedules. Yeah. Started walking me through the publicly available on-chain data through which you can, you know, assess adoption and kind of see tea leaves of where transaction volume is going. Yeah. We went from an Excel spreadsheet that he would update manually um to building out a very robust um platform that we call dora which is DeFi on-chain reporting analysis tool uh <laughs> or the explorer yeah and it had apis onto all the blockchains directly it sucked out all this great data and we were tracking you know hundreds of tokens yeah. and getting alerts uh hey there's a lot of activity over here there's a lot of transaction volumes up and so we created our own kind of ratios to, to level set one versus the other and say, man, this look at the transaction volume picking up over here or the total locked value to transaction ratio is this. Let's track that or let's allocate to that. And made a lot of money um, early days through DeFi summer. Um, and then, uh, you know, formalized it, launched a hedge fund and, and, um, and took it out into the market. The timing was not perfect for that. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, as we all know, it was basically um, call it the calendar year last year that we launched in January, <laughs> and so it was kind of yeah uh, unfortunate timing. But you know the data was spectacular and gave us a real view of of uh, you know on chain tools and and built some pretty cool tech. And we ultimately sold that to a firm um, called Valkyrie, who uh, yeah who, uh, people know you know uh, did the the Bitcoin uh, Nasdaq Bitcoin ETF yeah so yeah, yeah. Our, uh, our mutual fund Brian. I used to work there. Uh, that's right. That's yeah, right. I, that's actually where I, I think. Yeah, that's where we got connected. Now that I think about it. Um, but uh, that's super interesting. Um, what was I going to say? There was something that popped up in there that I wanted to kind of ask about. Um, oh, that was oh, it. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously it's great to have friends who are connected and are interested in these types of things, and you can get access. Um, I'm kind of pivoting to the regulatory side here. Like, where where do you kind of see the landscape for sort of greater adoption in the right way of you know crypto DeFi assets for sort of the mass investing public? Like, we're we're all waiting for that you know spot Bitcoin ETH ETF. Um, maybe it comes, maybe it doesn't. But like, where I think it'll come, but it's it's not going to happen anytime soon. Just the FTX thing 
just gave them the the fodder they needed to punch us back uh, and push us back in time. Unfortunately, that was a very big setback for us. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, it just it just gave them the I told you so when they don't even know what they're telling us. You know, they don't yeah. even know what we're talking about. But yeah. the reality of it is um, the, the, the digital asset and blockchain space needs to understand and embrace that the on-ramps and off-ramps will be regulated. Sure. Right? So me getting my U.S. dollars onto blockchain, I need to wire money somewhere for that to happen. Yeah. Right. And so if they control that pinch point of getting my money in and getting my money out, they, you know, that's, that's control. That's, and so they can regulate those on-ramps and off-ramps. Once you're on blockchain and, and truly decentralized, you can move it around, you can utilize it and have it forever. Problem is, if you then want to pull it out and buy a house, you, you got to engage with a government agency, which is sure. fine. You know, I've been pushing since 2017 embrace this regulation because that is the holy grail of getting corporate adoption is by the regulator saying we trust this and we're you know overseeing and monitoring it and that's not necessarily fully decentralized and so decentralized you know certain things should be fully decentralized but other uses of blockchain don't need to be fully decentralized and you know there's ways to use private permissioned blockchains that i think are very valuable and important and need to happen. And, um, you know, the, the, the ones that make it earliest are going to be the ones that I think just adopt that, uh, it, that regulation and embrace it, which I know is not what people want to hear that are, you know, true decentralists, but you know, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting because if you look at like FTX, there was really nothing much decentralized about it. Right. It was, oh. Clearly, completely centralized in the hands of board of directors was shocking to me. Yeah, the who was it? The guy, the bankruptcy lawyer who handled the Enron uh, blow up. He had a quote early, like his initial assessment was like, "I can't even believe this exists," you know. Um, but then, like, I guess the flip side of old DeFi is challenging too for a variety of reasons because a lot of the investing public doesn't or they either they don't have the ability to kind of understand what some of these things are, or they don't just have the time to, you know, my favorite story from that whole time, which I think is like the, the banner for DeFi is when Celsius was going under and there's people that are owed money by Celsius still today, seven months later, eight months later, whatever it is, they paid in full their DeFi contracts 48 hours before they declared bankruptcy. Yeah. Because they had collateralized DeFi contracts that were not unwindable unless they were paid in full. Yeah. What more do you need to know about how clean and beautiful DeFi is than the fact that the only contract that was honored by bankruptcies and creditors and debtors and all these folks was a DeFi one. Yeah. After they paid it, then they claimed bankruptcy and then they pushed into some court of law, go figure out who's getting what. But you know yeah. who got 100 cents on the dollar? Those that were locked into a decentralized contract. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty cool. That's the story that you don't hear, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, what a... It's ironic, just to, to close on that, that's what pisses me off about the whole thing is the only things that went wrong were centralized. Yeah, that, that's the big story. The only things that failed were centralized. Yeah, yeah, that, that is the big thing for the crypto industry is that's the story they want to get out. It's like, hey, this was all fraud committed by a small group of people that could easily have been done inside of a bank. Think, well, SVB wasn't fraud. That was probably more negligence. But, um, you know, people can commit bad acts and almost any sort of structure <laughs> so yeah yeah that was an unfortunate day for our industry uh, for the industry and um i think it's just ironic that you know kind of did prove decentralization but then for the uneducated it just gave them the talking points they needed to to slow us down that's why when i talk to people now who are wondering about where things are i say look you could just buy ethereum and coinbase and you're good for a while. 
Yeah. We're buying Microsoft and Bank of America of blockchain for the next 18 months. You'll get multiples probably of return. They're safe, they're liquid, they're deep. You know, don't overcomplicate. They're regulated, right? At least Coinbase. Um, yeah, no, Coinbase has embraced regulation. That's yeah. a good point. I mean, that that's back to my earlier comment. Like, look at what happens when you actually say, I'm going to do this right compared to Binance, you know, who's they're going to have a hard future. FTX, all these guys that skirted regulation, they don't, they don't ultimately win. And so, yeah, yeah they made more money than Coinbase for a while, but not anymore. And Coinbase is going to crush it for the next decade. Yeah. I mean, Coinbase is like the last. Well, in the U.S., I guess the last one standing um, in that regard. Um, and most other people are not setting up a VPN to go offshore through Binance and <laughs> through the Cayman Islands type thing. So, yeah, yeah. Um, what to? So you, you like or way earlier? You kind of talked about um, working with athletes, um, and I know a lot. A lot of athletes have been interested in crypto over the years. Um, do you still kind of have that connection and sort of advise on the side around, you know, hey, what do I do with my money type thing for a lot of these guys? Or Yeah, I, I have some close personal friends that I've had for 20 years now. And uh, just like you talk about with your buddies, what do you think is cool and interesting and smart? Um, I happen to have been in blockchain longer than most uh, of them uh, even knew how to spell it. So I do get the occasional question especially like when there's real frothy things going on, like NFTs and sure. figure that out. Um, and, you know, so I've been able to keep some people out of trouble, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Avoiding. I mean, I, uh, I, I had a little money on Celsius and I remember looking back and just wondering like, how are they offering like 15 to 20% yield on these things? And I just, couldn't I couldn't find any information that really led me to anything. And I was like, okay, this just seems strange. So let me just not be a part of this for a little bit. And luckily pair yields in the 60s was probably the top tick. Yeah. Yeah. It was just I don't know, it just didn't smell right. But then a lot of people don't have that sort of, I guess, career background to kind of make that assessment, yeah. right? Like so let me just you know, I'd love to talk about that for a minute because that's um, when that was occurring, what that was, as you know, right? So these, these these projects have their own treasuries and it's upon them to manage their own treasuries and the amount of tokens that are in the float and out in the market and volumes and liquidity. What they were doing was using their treasury reserve to incentivize deposits by offering yields that were not achievable, right? The, the only way you can pay an 18% yield is if someone's going to pay you a 19% yield for that money out the back door, right? Yeah. If, you don't, if you're not getting more from another client, you're not getting anything, which is why the current banking environment, you know, I feel bad for the Silicon Valley Bank situation because... In this yield environment, you know, they were forced to go out on the curve yeah. to be able to make yield because yield was 25 basis points. I mean, there's no revenue yeah. in taking deposits, and that encouraged them to take more risk than they maybe should have. And I, and I feel bad for the way that that whole thing uh, ended up breaking down. But by the same token, with some of those DeFi protocols and, and the stablecoin platforms, the stablecoins are concerning because... That has volatile and it's not clear the true supply and and sure. the true you know reserve backed uh, yeah. and so if you're a stablecoin saying I'm going to pay a yield, really what you're doing is just diluting those that own your coin by minting new new coins. Yeah. Therefore, the coin that the coin that they own is worth less. Yeah, U.S. government. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say it. Um. Same way they do that, you know, same game, but yeah. So they were using those reserves and diluting the people that were coming in to get the yield. That's okay. That that you know, that is what it is. That's transparent. The platforms that were incenting deposits by using their treasuries and diluting themselves, in essence, of course, they're pushing more float into the market, which is diluting the value of those that are holding it. 
But that's how they were gamifying that. And I think they were just doing it at a pace where they thought the market would catch up to them before they ran out of yeah. results. And they didn't. So, um, but that's, you know, um, that's not a crazy, like, that wasn't like some manufactured way to increase deposits. Like, that's what, you know, banks in the 80s would offer CDs for 18% to incentive, yeah. you know. To deposit your money at a local bank, and you know, so everything has their arc, and uh, and um, you know, I, I wasn't surprised by how some of that ended, but I just think it all happened faster than people assumed. Yeah, but I mean, at least as far as crypto, no one's really come to save you either. So it's, uh, I guess, truly libertarian in that sense. Like you can get stupid rich, but you can also get stupid broke really fast so and it was you know look at the look at the curve of crypto pricing trading volume robin hood adoption online gambling all yeah. of these things happened at the same time during covid now have the device in their hand covid happens they're all at home they have stimulus checks they have income they're not going to an office where they can't be you know, playing online poker all day because someone's looking over their shoulder. Yeah. And it became gambling and it became what people did, you know, to pass the time. And, you know, people thought they were day traders and traded, you know, meme stocks, the same that they thought that they were, you know, uh, altcoin uh, uh, aficionados. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty interesting to watch AMC and GameStop go up like that. And then who did they blow up? What hedge fund was that? That was uh Yeah, Gabe Plotkin. I mean, and that that whole thing flushed out some of the smartest people on the street. Yeah. Pretty yeah, pretty it, I'm, interesting paradigm shift, because this is where this is an area where I think regulation certainly hasn't kind of caught up. It's in like the you know, the shitcoin meme stock, YouTube marketing promoter type stuff. And sure, it's I guess it was an interesting case study to see. You know, a group of retail traders on Reddit say, fuck you, like, we're going to break this. And then they did. But at its core, that kind of feels like a coordinated market manipulated event. Yeah, you know? It is. It's like, no better than no, nobody was without flaw in that whole thing. And um, what they were trying to do was was shame people who were shorting companies but the reality of it is, like, if you don't have people shorting companies, then you have no capacity to be long because you need somebody to yeah. bet on the downside. And that's one of the biggest questions I get about lithium and copper right now is people are like, well, who's on the other side? Because I can't see anyone disagreeing with the fact that that's happening. You know, and that's admission that you need to have two sides of the trade and that short people going short names on Wall Street is what creates liquidity and what creates volume. And gives people the ability to take the other side of that bet, just like, you know, betting on the NBA playoffs. You got to take yeah. one side or the other, but you you can't all take one side. Yeah. Someone to be on the other side of the trade. So on that, I, I guess to kind of open this uh, topic, who, who is the other side of the uh, sort of battery commodities trade? If you're going long, who's going short? And so what happens a lot is if you're a miner, right, and you've proven that you have... 1000 tons of lithium in your ground in your land. Yeah. You want to sell that today, lock in the price, yeah. Lock in today's price and use that money that you just got to dig. And then, you know, your game is I'm selling a future portion of my weight. Sure. For money to finance my operation today. And yeah, as I dig it out, I'll pay that down and give that, deliver those contracts. But at the end of the day, they just financed my own development, you know, because they bought future contracts on, on the delivery. Sure. Of the metal. And that is, is who's usually on the other side is people who want to take, you know, uh, profit today for something that they can deliver tomorrow. Yeah. And then I always, you know, talk about the biggest risk to the EVs and Tesla and the like in the future is their ability to deliver these cars at affordable prices. And if the price of copper is $40 up from $4 today, 
that means that that's 10 times more expensive for them to put in the car and they better be sure that they can acquire those metals at prices that make it, you know, reasonable sure. and priced reasonably for the market to want to buy it. Yeah. A lot, a lot more people buy Teslas at 35,000 than 45,000 than 55,000 to 65,000. And yeah. so it's just a race to the bottom for them to make it as inexpensive as possible. And they've done a great job of driving efficiencies in their plants and in their processes. But the only thing that they can't control is lithium, nickel, copper, and cobalt. They yeah. can't control the price of that. They can control operating efficiencies, speed of production. They can control those things and they can, you know, bring a, a efficiencies to it to make it more effective. They can't gamify the price of the underlying commodities, which is why charge, you know, our ETF, I think is such a great way to play the space because they should be buying charge. We are the hedge that they need for their own capacity to operate in the future. Do uh do you guys look into the future, I guess, of material science to see if there's something on the horizon that could yeah. Yeah. Part of those thousand inputs that I was referencing earlier, you know, we're tracking all that stuff. And that's why we made our fund actively managed because yeah. I do not believe five years from now we'll be using AC NCM 811 batteries. We might be completely rid of cobalt. Um, I doubt we're rid of nickel and lithium, but they'll be in different ratios. And I hope we discover something that makes this faster or easier to do and less taxing on the environment. As we do, our portfolio will pivot and give our investors exposure to that whenever that may occur. But there are amazing uh, maturations of the underlying science and technology that's driving um, battery performance. And uh, it's something we track very closely. Do you think it gets to like, do you think battery tech can actually get good enough to go fully renewable? Or is there always going to be a place for fossil fuels somewhere? There's always going to be a place. You know, we people say energy transition, and I usually say it's not a transition, it's an expansion. Because our populations are growing, our, our, our commercial endeavors are growing. Um, and so our need for energy in the future is growing. And we need different sources, more diverse sources than the ones we've used. And if we can replace heavily environmentally taxing um, uh, sources of energy with less taxing, then that's just something we got to do. And so I think that as the energy expansion occurs, um, a lot of that will be borne by batteries and, and um, you know uh, their capacities. But I do not believe that we will have a time in our lifetimes where there's a need for oil, gas, and, and the like. Yeah, it's one of the things I've followed, I guess, a lot as as my ability can allow, I guess, um, is just kind of like what is green to a degree, right? Like there there was, I forget, it was somebody's podcast. It might have been Michael Schellenberger. I don't know if you've read his work. Okay. Um, but he was talking about like, well, if we make a transition from, this is very rough, so I, I could be totally yeah. wrong on this, but um, but if we make a transition from coal to net gas and that reduces, you know, emissions by, I think he said roughly half, why wouldn't we do that? You know, how is that not green? It's not zero, but, you know, I, I kind of feel like a lot of the energy climate debate has got so... Um, such a religious aspect to it that like, unless you're like, you know, well, let's go back a step. Remember when I said how decentral is decentralized? Yeah. You know, like, yes, there are people that think that you should live off the grid and go to the bathroom in a pot. And, you know, yeah, that's fun. I, I good luck. That yeah. doesn't happen to be a reality for my life. So it's upon me to do the things that I can do to, to contribute to carbon neutrality. Yeah. Right? The best I can. If I have an opportunity to go left or right and left's going to be better than the environment, you want me going left. But the fact that, you know, people's dream of this thing being um, you know, back to like Adam and Eve is just it's just not a reality and that's okay. I'm glad those dreamers exist, just like we need decentralists driving blockchain innovation, you know, implementation doesn't have to be fully that's the same with the green game. Like, I want us to be greener. I want our environment to be cleaner. And I want us to all take the steps we can. And 
Luckily, there's huge, massive government incentives and geopolitical movements towards making that a reality, which is only good for us. And we will be better off, you know, a decade, 20 years from now when our children are uh, um, having these conversations. Yeah. 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 I guess uh, 20 years from now, my daughter probably will be having these conversations. Um, yeah. I, I keep checking my phone because I'm like, you know, I could, my wife could take me time. Ben's wife is having a baby like she, she's due today. So we're excited and praying for a yeah. healthy, yeah. happy day. Yeah. That'll be, uh, Maybe that's an interesting thing to do. Do you talk? How, I mean, how old are your kids right now? Six or two and uh, one on the way. Okay. So probably too young to kind of start talking about topics like this and sort of educating them on, you know, the world to a degree, I guess. Yeah. And you find your windows. My six year old is uh, inquisitive. Yeah. And, you know, these are formative years. You know, it's amazing the impact that we have on children and what we expose them to and how we show them, um, you know, what a traditional household looks like or what a loving uh, home feels like, or, you know, make steps like that to, so that they at least grow up with the, with, uh, you know, that, that uh, ideology is, is the, the goal of my wife and I um, to each his own. But, um, you know, my son is funny last night um, was asking me about my did I have brothers growing up? Because he's about to have two brothers. And um, did my father have brothers? And one of my father's brothers had passed. And how did that happen? And then he yeah. said to me, is it because he smoked cigarettes? And I was like, how do you know that? <laughs> what? Yeah. Where did that come from? I mean, yeah. you just never know where they pick things up. Yeah. Uh, but it opened up an interesting conversation about health and how it's so important. You know, and my two-year-old you know, I'll say, show me your muscles. Did you eat your protein? Did you eat chicken? Did you eat? Because he just wants to eat, you know, granola yeah, bars. For sure. So I'm yeah. trying to like trick him into the fact that protein will make him strong and fast like Lightning McQueen. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. Um, do you have any, I guess, uh, tips or tricks for new fathers? Anything you've kind of learned that? You know, my, my, uh, I'm so lucky to have happy and healthy kids and, um, you know, the, the, the first couple of years of their life are all about you caring for the wife uh, and, and the wife is so important or or the, the mother, pardon me. Yeah. However, you, people choose to address, uh, uh, approach that. Um, it's just about supporting your your spouse and, and, and raising the child in a happy and healthy environment and mm-hmm. putting them in a safe place and, and just bringing that safety. And then after two, it only gets better for dads. Um, that's kind of like when your real relationship with the, with the kid gets gets really meaningful and, and better every day. Um, my goal and my advice is just to be as present as possible, which is sure. really, you know, with iPhones and computers and stuff going on that, you know, you could be easily distracted by um, really making a conscious effort to be present. Yeah, uh, look them in the eye and and give them meaningful time is, uh, and not be, you know, bringing unnecessary things into their world that don't need to be. They don't. If you have a bad day at work or stress pops up from something, they they got nothing to do with that. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, that's not. Yeah. Yeah. And so just trying to create that environment where they feel safe and and able to flourish um, in the early years, you know, and trying to be present, and then also trying to be really supportive because it is quite taxing on the woman uh in in the the birth process and the breastfeeding and the nights and this certain things we cannot do as men um that they yeah. need to do. um so you just really got to be her biggest supporter and then um you know it, that that trickles down uh you know in 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 folds well yeah i i i mean you kind of touched on how where do these kids pick things up but i assume the way that you know you act as a husband to your wife goes you know, probably can't even measure the impact that that has on a young kid and just how they grow up and see the world. Totally. That's, that's our, I think that's an important thing. And, you know, not everybody, I I was lucky to be raised in a, uh, you know, two parent household and my parents are still married and um, they were able, I was able to grow up in that environment, which I benefited from. I think, I I think it's hard, it's hard enough. Yeah. Uh, So I really, you know, pray for people that don't, that can't, I mean, it's not people's decision, you know, that, that I don't knock, um, you know, divorce or, 
or you know single parents at all um and that's just that's just part of the reality of our world but um it's just harder you know everything yeah just so yeah to, my goal at least and my, and my beliefs are to try to you know just provide a really safe and and sound home and, and a loving environment where they understand you know what traditional relationship should look like and and um um you know what a loving partnership looks like and what it means like to be sacrificial and to do things for others and all that stuff happens in the kitchen you know yeah yeah you gotta go outside the walls to see that stuff it's about let me get that. Let me pick this up. I'll, let me step up and and uh, contribute here. And they they're paying attention. Yeah, it's uh it's interesting that that's kind of the road that you went down. Because I was talking to my brother in law. Um, he's a bit older. Uh, he has uh, three kids. But I was just asking about financial stuff. Like, what's the? How do you save for college? Is it mostly a five twenty nine? And his answer was like, yeah to a degree, but that's like not one of my biggest priorities at all. One of my biggest is really more just stability, the home and their health. And I was like, Oh, that's, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Like, you know, I guess being financially minded, that's kind of where my head goes, but um, yeah, look, I went to 20 years ago, I went to a four-year college 20 years from now. I'm not sure my kids will. I mean, it's just education's changing. Um, And so I've made the joke because there's this whole there's this whole thing for uh, where people say forget five twenty nine plans buy a, a house, right? A house is a relative term, but if you buy yeah. an apartment and you take the money you were going to put into an education and buy an apartment that creates cash flow and you use that cash flow to pay down the debt eighteen years from now, that cash flow or that asset can pay for an education if you want. It's just a different investment vehicle. I yeah. put. I could tell you go buy Bitcoin, go buy Ethereum, yeah. Yeah, yeah. go buy charge, go buy copper. Like yeah. 18 years from now, I promise you all of those assets are, are more valuable than they are today. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's another way for you to kind of plan for the future is like I'm taking an 18-year view on this investment. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully 18, right? You don't want them hanging around too much longer than that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, at least that's kind of what my wife and I have been hoping for is raise them well, get them out so we can go do, uh, whatever we want to. Yeah. That'll be a fun day for you. I'm excited for you. Yeah. It's going to be a brave new world. Um, we'll, we'll see how everything goes, but let's see, we are about 50 minutes into this or so. Do you want to maybe take the last 10 here and just kind of wind down with whatever comes to mind, like anything, uh, you want to mention before we sign off? Yeah, no, I'm excited to kind of chat with you. We have a lot of uh, connectivity between blockchain and uh, the energy stuff, and the, all, all this stuff is is woven together. You know, I think what's going on in the world today is people are newly realizing that you know sixty forty bonds and equities is archaic. You know, yeah. a lot of the things that we thought made sense just don't make sense anymore. And um, when you see the Fed printing dollars as they have and, and you know, inflation as it is and banking and lending, you know, within 12 months going from 2% to 10%. I mean, literally 12 months ago, I bought a house and had, uh, I think it was 3.25% 30-year mortgage. Yeah. Two days ago, I went to buy a car and they offered me 9.9%. Yeah. Well, that's in 12 months. I mean, this the, that whipsaw is crazy. So the, the whole world has changed a lot in the last 12 months, and it's going to take a long time to get back to where we were. Um, and so because of that, people are recalibrating, you know, what are the safe haven assets? And you heard me say it several times throughout our talk that I focus on liquidity. Yeah. Right? Like, that's why I love digital assets is 24-7 liquidity. Uh, another great story was from the Silicon Valley Bank weekend. I don't know if you tracked what happened with Circle that weekend, but we made a lot of money. Uh, it it depegged, right? Yeah, down yeah. to eighty nine cents because of fear that they yeah. had a portion of their deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, which even if they lost one hundred percent of those deposits, only would have been one penny marginal. Yeah. yeah, nothing. But the market overreacted, so. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, when you couldn't trade Silicon Valley Bank or Bank of America because the public equity markets are closed, yeah, 
you could buy digital assets. You could buy USDC for 89 cents on Friday and sell it for 99 cents on Sunday. Yeah. So liquidity is a, you know, it's your, it's a gift and a curse, but that was just another great story for me about how important it is to have that type of liquidity, 24 seven liquidity and how liquidity can, you know, work both ways too, because I want people to take a long view when they're making investments. I don't think that they need to be day trading unless that they have some special skill that I've yet to ever encounter. But um, if you need to, it's nice to have liquidity. Yeah. So how do I get long? How do how do I get exposure to assets that I think have a long growth curve, but also have liquid structures like ETFs or like digital assets? It's very similar because I think that's the holy grail is emerging and growing asset classes and liquid structures is like the best of both worlds. And so instead of having to lock up, you know, giving my money to a um, tech venture capital firm and not seeing another, not seeing a nickel for 10 years and hoping they get it right, I can buy venture exposure in digital assets. And if I need that money in six weeks, I can get it. There's yeah. no law. Or if I want to leave it for 10 years, I can also leave it for 10 years, but I don't have to be locked up and subjected to that. And the liquidity is paramount, you know? And so in the same vein, you know, with the ETF, we took futures contracts that retail investors could not trade themselves and just put them into a legal wrapper that made that doable. And now they can buy it through us on the New York Stock Exchange. That's pretty cool. It's just a liquidity arbitrage that got filled, and yeah. um, people deserve that access. You know, it doesn't make sense that the only people trading copper futures are billionaires. It should yeah. be all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do uh, do you guys have competitors offering something similar, or are you first market for this? Yeah, there aren't there aren't really any competitors. Yeah, there's, there's yeah, been yeah. two other products that have launched futures based exposure, but they're passively managed, which means they just set their portfolios and sure. Okay. Um, yeah. It don't makes any sense to me in this space. To your point, you know, this is a ever-evolving thing. And you, you it's already changed in the last five months since I've been doing. I mean, we added 25% to our copper position in the last five months. Yeah. If we were passive, we would have gotten killed. So yeah, we're the right product. There are other ETFs saying that they deliver battery exposure, but they have a lot of Shanghai listed Chinese traded companies as they're yeah. holding. And that's another yeah. risk too, right? The huge risk. So you have, you know, international holdings, especially Chinese ones. You have EV and and solar and um, uh, mining companies that are really startups that have no proven track record of having done this before. Yeah, and have to raise a lot of money and have to get a lot of things right to be alive in the next five or ten years. And um, so I don't think that that is. The right way for retail investors to participate in this adoption curve, either. Oh, by the way, there's an ironic full circle moment here. Fund of funds ended because of Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff was allocated to by a bunch of fund of funds. And when he was uncovered as a fraud, a lot of people turned to the fund of funds who they had given discretion to, who sub allocated to Madoff and said, Well, what am I paying you for? Yeah, you should know better. Right. No better, or I paid you to diligence that and catch that. I didn't. Yeah. That's not on me. That's on you. That was your job. Yeah. And so people stopped allocating to fund of funds because of that critique, which is, you know, and, and call to into question about what are these people actually doing for their value? I think that ETFs could have their made off moment because a lot of them are managed by people in towers that don't know the asset class they're allocating to. It's just running a math equation. And at some point, there's going to be a lot of blowups in ETF portfolios, and investors are going to be like, "What do you mean I lost eight percent of my money and that company went bankrupt?" That's what I pay you to figure out. And that I think it's a really is conversation for a whole another podcast because I've really you that you touched a nerve there because I've wondered about you know. Like ETFs are great for what they are, but are they the end-all catch-all of financial products that everyone should be structured in? Like, I I do wonder if there will be sort of that black swan moment for ETFs. I believe there'll be a reckoning and it could be in the battery space because a lot of the ones that have billions of dollars of investor money in them, if you look at their holdings, 
there's a way to just click through their website. Let me see your yeah. top 10 things. It's not, it, it's not encouraging. Because <laughs> yeah. in reality, you're just like, oh, I bought this ETF. Well, what do you really own? Go look. Yeah. And then think about the person that you're giving discretion to allocate to those companies. Is that someone that knows anything about that sector? How do they make those investment decisions? There's going to be some ugly days in, in some uh, of these big ETFs. Yeah, that's that gets into the do your research meme, which I always hate because like I find it so patronizing for people to tell you for tell particularly retail investors, just go do your research. And it's like, dude, I got a wife and kids. I got dogs. I got my job like I'm just trying to have a little fun. Like I, I'm not, you know, a battery expert, you know, um, that's just an aside, I guess. But uh well, people just don't know. They don't know the questions yeah. to ask. Well, yeah. And I mean, maybe nor should they, though, is the thing. And I think that's where the industry, you know, and I guess regulators need to take it upon themselves to make sure that, you know, what is available to the public is sound and actually makes sense. Um, so there's and probably another that regulatory process with London Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and now New York Stock Exchange. Uh, I'm confident telling you that is not happening. It is purely box checking and legal filing and the collecting a fee. And there you yeah, go. The obstacle, what, what do they call it? The uh, um, barrier to entry is low. And because of that, there's a lot of people that don't know anything about energy. Yeah. Managing $5 billion of energy allocations. And they could not pronounce some of the names that are in their portfolios. Yeah. At some point that's going to come to be. That's an interesting thought. Because I mean, what is it? Several hundred thousand dollars or so to list and get the legal work done. And yeah. then well, about a half a million bucks. That's not like a lot of money. About the fact that, yeah, it's a lot of money. And so that is a barrier to entry, but it's more so if you are a big ETF shop, of which there are now a handful that have hundreds of funds. Yeah. You're just in the business of spitting out products because yeah. people might want them. Yeah. Any without any like competitive edge or rhyme or reason for why you know anything more than you know uh anyone. Yeah, and that's what's that's always what kind of has, I guess, partially scared me a little bit about ETFs is because they're they're marketed like you know, uh like like e-cigarettes, like flavored cigarettes, you know, like they're you know, by you know, to pick on, I guess, EVs, like buy supercharged EV, ETF, blah, blah, blah. That's all cutting edge. And to your point, like, what do people really know about this outside of like marketers said, you know, Google searches for EVs are going up and this is sort of the trend, right? Well, that's, I think last year, at least in my industry, as I alluded to the, the Tesla price, but I had have had conversations with very savvy investors uh, in the last few months who had exposure to some of my competitors last year. And if you didn't look at the stock price and you just read headlines, you were like, we're killing it. Yeah. Is adoption up, going green, Inflation Reduction Act, Tesla, all these things, these companies are exploding. But then you look at your chart and you're like, how did I lose money? Yeah. I was right the thesis and I had the wrong holdings wait a minute, who's making these decisions? Yeah, And so it, we've gotten a lot of flows away from some of those players just because of we got lucky with timing, with their poor performance. Sure. And then because we're just the pure commodities, you just got to look at a chart and you can find the data. It's not hidden data for what that price activity has done and, and should continue to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you should have kept the DeFi hedge fund then and really just stuck with Ethereum and Bitcoin. Like, Heck, I'll tell you what, I wish I had it now. I mean, we would be up so much right now with with what's gone on in the last six months we we missed our window unfortunately but uh that doesn't it, it hasn't dulled my excitement for for blockchain and DeFi adoption do you th last question quick one i guess do you do you think uh we're in that new crypto bull market just yet or are we still waiting for a few things to settle out yeah i think i think maybe fall people are going to have their legs under them you know, I, I've been talking a lot recently about all these Fed activities are like are like adjusting a thermostat. And if you adjust the thermostat in your living room, the heat doesn't change immediately. It, it takes, takes a while. 
while. And so when the Fed moves rates, we don't really see the impact of those movements for quarters. Yeah. And so even though they may be done in this May session, um, raising rates, we won't really know the impacts of that until August. And I just don't think investors are going to really pour in to risk assets until that solid ground is in. And um, I think that that time could be hopefully Q4 in September. Um, we're past an election cycle, you know, we're, we're in a nice little lull here, here in the uh, yeah. market. Um, so may, maybe we have like a kind of static next few months and then a gangbusters uh, fall and winter. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, the Fed backing up rates like what was it, three, basically three or four X in a year could be quite the time bomb that we haven't seen just yet. So we'll find out. Yeah, man. It's uh, yeah, people are people aren't really able to do that math because when you know milk goes up five cents a week, you don't notice it until you look in six months and you're just like, I can't believe I'm paying this amount for milk. Yeah. Uh, it happens slowly uh and uh you know it adds up. Yeah, we'll see. Well, um let's leave it there. Well, do you uh where can people find you? Find your stuff, where's charge? You actually I was thinking about that too. Uh when you were saying how you track some of this stuff, we do a very good job, and I can say that because I'm not the one who does it, um, of uh pushing out news articles and market commentary on LinkedIn and on Twitter okay. at EMP Advisors. Um, I'm easily findable on there as well and, and do, do my best to, to share good things. I do a lot of media hits, uh, talking about similar stuff, but mostly just sharing. We, we try to aggregate and share news relevant to the sector, positive sure. and negative, just so that people can sift through it. And so on our website, emgadvisors.com, you can, uh, register for a weekly newsletter that is a lot of work goes into making sure that that's you know a good summary of what's going on in, in the energy um in green energy world and so that's a really efficient way to stay up to date and then you can buy charge uh on the new york stock exchange on schwab you can buy it on Robinhood. Robinhood. wherever yeah. you've got an account you can log in there and type in charge and find us on the new york stock exchange and uh, you'll be exposed to the adoption curve of you know, these green metals, which I think is a pretty exciting place to be for the next long time. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, let's uh, just leave it there. Well, great to have you. You're welcome back anytime. And you, uh, we'll give you the last word there if you want it. No, man, I'll be I'll be praying for you. And, and uh, you're going to have a fun uh, next week here. Uh, and so I uh, can't wait to hear the good news and um, be thinking about you through that process. It's it's, it's uh, cherished days. So I'm happy yeah. for your experience. Mm -hmm. Next couple podcasts, there will be a kid probably crying here. There, I'll have to learn how to edit that out. So, <laughs> no doubt, no, it's going to change all that too. Cool. All right, thanks, well. All right, brother. Nice to be with you. Yep. Yeah.